I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available at iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto-steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Marion Calmer is a well-known name in agriculture. Currently no-tilling about a thousand acres of corn and soybeans in Alpha, Illinois, Calmer conducts scores of practical on-farm research projects every year, insisting on field-sized replicated plots that run entire field lengths in widths that match his regular production machinery. His research has led him to some surprising conclusions, such as his findings that low soybean populations yield as well as high populations do, and spreading phosphorus and potassium on the surface of the ground doesn't pay. He's also the brains behind Calma Cornheads and the BT Chopping Stock Rolls, inventions he developed after research showed a benefit to growing 15-inch cornrows. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Lester talks with Marion about some of the discoveries he's made in his nearly four decades of no-tilling, including why he says no-till offers at least a $50 per acre advantage over tillage, what he considers his biggest mistakes early on, his thoughts on getting P&K deeper into the soil profile, plans for capitalizing on the $4 return he gets for every $1 of applied nitrogen, and much more. And you grew up on the farm that you still farm to some extent? Absolutely. I uh, remember as a little kid, one of the most exciting things to get up every morning and ride with dad in the truck. So, uh, yeah, I've been farming my entire life and we still raise corn and soybeans, no-till corn and soybeans. There was a stretch in there where I used to raise a lot of pigs outside and kind of phased out of that years ago. So uh, just enjoying the winters and the summers now. All right. Now we'll get into some of your business that you're running later, but how many acres are you farming these days? We have about a thousand. That We ran a little bit of it, most of it family owned. Yeah. Tell me how you got into no-tilling, how long you've been doing it. Well, I think it was in the early to mid 80s, started seeing articles and a few neighbors trying it. And so I think I adopted it to probably 100% no-tilling the beans into the corn stalks in the mid 80s. And then by the late 80s, I think I was no-tilling the corn into the bean stubble as well. So that's quite a ways back. Well, you just brought up an interesting point because when you're out there and you see this soybean stubble, you think, my God, it would be easier to no-till corn into that than it is to no-till soybeans in the heavy corn stubble. But that hasn't been the case over the years for most people. Yeah, it seemed like the best way to ease into it was beans in the corn stalk. They seemed to be a little more forgiving, and the no-till drills back then had coulter carts, and you simply run a fluted coulter, drill the beans, and spray on a little Roundup, a little burn down, and then give them a second pass, and by harvest, they looked just fine. Corn was a little more challenging, the sidewall compaction, and there was row cleaners, and the row cleaners we had back then were pretty primitive and weren't spring-loaded, or you couldn't adjust them, and it just took a lot more 
time. The learning curve on corn was a little bit longer than it was on soybeans. So back in the 80s, what's the biggest mistake you made in no-till? Oh, gosh. I think it was just trying to not spend any money on planter attachments. Things were kind of tight back then. Early 80s were really tough, and they just didn't have a lot of extra money laying around, and you could spend a fortune buying things. And I started out, the planter I had was just a 7,000 John Deere. It had bubble colders on it. And other than resetting the depth, I didn't have to do a lot to be pretty successful at it back then. But I found out that later on, buying the right attachments would have enough yield increase that it just took one season to get a payback. Uh, Row cleaners are really important when you're putting corn in the ground. Now that we've moved on with all of the attachment and then all of the electronics that are in the cabs, it's almost becoming overwhelming, especially as I grow older. (laughs) Right. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. (laughs) So what would be your basic seeding rates for corn and soybeans across most of your acres? Well, we start with corn first. I'm a big one on return on investment, and you kind of got to show me before I'm going to jump in. But I think the last time I looked, corn seeds cost us about $4 a thousand. So if I'm going to go from 30 up to 35,000, that means I'm going to spend an extra 20 bucks an acre. And if you're figuring corn at four bucks, I mean, that's five bushel just to pay for the seed. One of the other things I've learned over time is that we as humans have a tendency to overestimate income and underestimate expenses. So even Even if I got a five bushel increase, my opinion, that's not enough. Margin's too tight. I mean, I've got to prepay for the seed. I got to have somebody haul it to the field. I got to dump it in the planter and all those kind of things. So I always try to figure that if I need 20 bucks to pay for the seed, well, then I doggone, I think I got to have $30 worth of yield. I'm pretty big on doing some strip trials. Now, genotypically speaking, some hybrids like high populations and some don't. You almost have to go a little bit by the seed company's recommendations, and then you run into the conflict of interest. Interesting. I mean, they're the ones that are making the recommendation, but they're also the ones selling the seed. And I love and adore my seed people and everybody else. I kind of like to see it myself, but right now, 32,000 seems to be pretty profitable. I can get a yield increase up there at 35, 36, but the problem is just not enough. And speaking of higher populations with the nasty windstorms that we saw come through Iowa and then they caught my part of Illinois, I've seen my research plots after a windstorm and and we take the end rows off at harvest, and you can see where we planted at 28,000, the corn standing straight up and down, and where we planted it at 44,000, the corn was leaning and laid over and fall down. So population, there's some negative things to having too much, but I get along fine at 32, don't have a lot of disease pressure. Soybeans? Now that one, I was really surprised 20-some years ago when I started doing that research. What little bit of yield advantage that's associated with soybean population, I really was. Of course, we used to drill them. We used to no-till them and you'd over-plant because you knew that your mortality rates were going to be a little bit higher with a drill. And then once I went to a 15-inch planter, we could actually monitor it. And so our studies, we had 50,000 and then we'd go to 75 and 100 and 125, 150, 175, and then finally all the way up to 200,000. So we had seven different populations and then we'd replicate it four times. And then we did that over a six-year period. And so that means we had 20, 30 replications of the whole thing. And much to my surprise, over all those replications, the the average yield is 69 bushel and all the way across. And then at 200,000, depending on how you round it, the average over those 24 replications was 70 bushel. But I mean, when you look at what we're paying for 
for the soybean seed. It's $60 a bag. I'm not sure where we're at this year, but every time I hop population, that costs me an extra 10 bucks an acre. And again, I got to have somebody bring it to the field. I got to dump it in the planter and all those things. So the data, the field studies that I have on soybean populations would indicate that there's just not a whole lot of profitability above the 75,000. And that's what's on the screen at planting time. And of course, if you got good row cleaners, coulters, and some good residue management out ahead of you, your mortality rates aren't very high. Now, with that being said, the onset of herbicide-resistant weeds is becoming more and more prevalent every day. And soybean populations, of course, is there's some weed control that's associated with higher populations. So right now, today, this spring, we're going to be planting at 100,000. I know I don't need them all, but that's giving me a little bit of weed control and giving me a little cushion just in case we get some crusting or some insect issues or a little bit of hail damage, any of those kind of things. But still, and I think even my buddy, Randy Dowdy, he grew the 190 bushel beans and he's just like I am. You just don't need a lot of seed out there to to get good yields. I remember once, and it must have been when you were just getting started on these soybean trials, you were talking at the National No-Tillage Conference and you had a presentation and it showed that maybe the highest yields or the best yields were 60, 70 bushel per acre, but you didn't have the courage to put your whole farm into that the next year. <laughs> Isn't that you know, right? <laughs> that is exactly right. And I had somebody in Minnesota that asked me, I was in a little farmer meeting at somebody's farm shop and 20 guys, and I made that exact statement. I said, you know what? The data is telling me I need to be under 100,000. And at that time, I was still like 125. And they said, well, why won't you switch? And I said, I don't know. i just a little nervous. And then well, I guess my suggestion here for anybody that's listening, you don't have to take the whole 1,000, 2,000 acres. Sure. You take one field and plant it at 100,000. I mean, you're not going to go broke because you're having one field. And I think that's where I gained the confidence the first year. I had a whole field that was planted at like 75,000. And when I harvested it, it just wasn't any different than any of the rest of the beans, same variety. And the next year, I think I went to two fields. And then after that, I'd been the whole thing. But I tell you that that first pass down the field and it says 75 or 80,000 on the screen, all right. <laughs> I tell you, that makes for a lot of anxiety because it's just not normal. Right. You mentioned earlier drills and how we got a little bit of the yield increase from drills. I remember back in the 80s how people were so excited because they were getting two, three, four bushel more beans per acre with drills. But I used to say, and you're talking return on investment. Well, my God, you're better off with a lower yield with a planter than having to buy a drill. Right. The drills are expensive. And nowadays, just a, a lot of us, we got a lot of acres to cover. Or we have a lot of other projects that we're working on. And you get to that point where you say, I can putz around here, but is there enough return on investment to justify the cost and everything else? I think we're seeing a little bit of trend, whether we like it or not, but most everybody went from the drill, they went to 15-inch rows. A lot of 15-inch beans around the country. Well, it was pretty tough to pull a 90-foot, 15-inch planter down through the field because it just takes so doggone much horsepower. There's a few more people going to 30-inch rows, but I've done the studies, and I can tell you, if you compare the drill and the 15-inch planter to 30-inch rows, soybeans are a legume and they like the concept of being solid seeded weed control they like the concept of solid seeded and those of us that are in no-till i mean we're erosion is a biggie and i can tell you drilled beans are going to hold the soil better than 15s or 30s right so what do you think no-till's been worth to you over the years per acre 
Well, the reduced anxiety, you used to go out there and we used to do some tillage and you'd see a forecast and say, well, we got two days of dry weather and then it's supposed to rain and say, well, we better go out and get some field cultivating done. Well, you go out and do a little field cultivating, it's maybe a little damp. And then two days later, it's supposed to rain, but it doesn't. And then you get some hot, dry weather and then you start in planting. And then all of a sudden I got a dry seed bed. It's just unnerving because now you start planting deeper and it's just a chain of events that doesn't do anybody any good. And then sure enough, it gets hot and dry, you plant deep, and then you get a two-inch thunderstorm. And we've all been there over the years. And now you're sitting there at home and, oh gosh, now it's not going to come through the crust and everything else. So the reduced anxiety, I think, is just, I always know that when I no-till, whether I get there on the first day or whether I get there on day 14 of dry weather, I've still got good moisture and good erosion. But it's worth an easy $50 an acre to me to not have to be out there running around doing a lot of tillage. Just a waste of time, a waste of fuel. And then after you start buying, I think about my first farm when I was in my 20s, and I think it was just shortly thereafter that I started no-tilling. And we got hit by the drought in 1988. And all three of those events were at a younger age. And I can tell you, it's one of the best decisions ever made. Do you have any trouble selling the banker on no-till? No, he was fine with it. I mean, when you start out on your own and you're having to borrow money every year, when the banker hears a reduced input cost, they get excited about those things. Yeah, I figure he said, I'll give Marion a chance since I don't have to finance $80,000 worth of machinery. Well, and there's something to be said about that, too. You just don't need the tractors. You just don't need the horsepower. And you don't need the manpower. And it's one of those things. I mean, there's a learning curve and it's not any fun. But if you can go to a conference or you can read a magazine about telling you how to get started, no telling, and you can avoid some of those early mistakes, sidewall compaction was a big one for all of us. But if you can avoid those early mistakes and you get off and that first couple of years goes pretty good, it's something that you're going to be able to pass the farm on to the next generation and the soil's still going to be there when you give it to them. Right. Well, you mentioned the no-till being worth $50 an acre. And one of the things I've noticed on the no-till conference, particularly in the last few years, is the ag economy hasn't been good. We've had low prices, high input costs. But you get these no-tillers together at the National No-Tillage Conference, and you never hear them griping about prices. They're suffering along with everybody else, but they're so optimistic, and they know that no-till is making them more money. They just kind of take the commodity prices for granted and figure nothing I can really do about it, but I'll do okay even with when they are low. Right. And then during the good years, you got a little extra under your belt and you're able to get your net worth up there. So you got a little cushion to fall back on on a couple of bad years. But I can't lose money on a per acre basis and expect to make it up in volume. It just doesn't happen. You've got to have a business plan that shows a 20 or 30 percent return on investment so that when you're all done, you got a little bit of profit. And we've all been there. We've all done it. And we've all struggled financially. And sometimes I think that's what teaches us that, hey, got to try something new. And if I'm not trying something new every year, whether it's no-till or whatever, if I'm not trying something new, then that means I'm standing still. Right. And that means my neighbors or whoever, they're starting to adopt new technology and I'm going to get left in the dust. Right. Well, you've probably done as much on-farm research trials as anybody. Tell me when you got started on this and why you decided you needed to do it. 
Well, when I bought my first farm back in the early 80s, I was fresh out of college, and luckily they had a government program for beginning farmers that that helped keep the interest rate down. And it was just at that moment, I said, you know what, I've actually got to pay for this farm (laughs) ground, and it just doesn't come out of the air. And I thought, I'm young enough, and if I can learn what works on my farm what's the most profitable on my farm, then that should help accelerate the speed at which I can pay the principal back on that first 80 acres that I bought. And I think the first couple of years, it was a little bit of learning curve, but those were the primitive days where we had to have a way buggy in the field and somebody to wheel off the length sure. and you'd have a moisture sensor out there. And of course, you're younger, had a lot more ambition. And every year, my thirst for knowledge just kept it growing. Every year, I wanted to add another research trial, whether it was tillage or fertilizer or nitrogen. And the next year, you'd add something else on populations. And you just kept going like that. You get to that point where you're almost addicted to it. You just want to find out something. What's the next thing I can learn that makes me a better farmer or a better steward and makes me a little bit more profitable? So that's what started it early. But today, the technology, it's right there in the cab. And with auto steer, it's real easy. Once you get started, like for me, you look at row spacings on corn and you get the planter set up for 30 inch rows. So you plant down and then you skip a line and then plant back and skip a line and plant down. And so you do that all the way across the field. And then when you get done, then you can switch the planter over to 15 inch rows and then you come back and then you can see all of the areas that aren't planted. So then you can go in and you can fill in every other pass with 15 inch rows. And then when you pull in with a yield monitor, I mean, they're not a hundred percent accurate, but it at least was with a colored yield chart. I mean, you can get the printout, a colored yield map, and believe it or not, you can get it to look like the stripes on the American flag. And (laughs) all of a sudden, it's like research for us lazy people as we get a little older, and I don't have to crawl up and down the ladder and put flags in the ground and all that other stuff. And the combines track and moisture and row length and all of those kind of things. And then most of us are running green carts with scales. And so we stop at the end and we actually do weigh every plot. Slows us down a little bit, but what's that worth? So you spend an extra day fiddling around with research plots. But you learn something that's worth 50 bucks an acre on 1,000 acres. Well, there's $50,000. Right. You spend one day to make 50000 bucks. Boy, that's a pretty good return on investment, in my opinion. Right, right. So when you're talking plots, we're not talking 100 feet long, 200 feet long plots here, are we? No, I guess I've never been real fond of those. I, one of the things I explain to people is you take your farm truck and go out and check gas mileage in your farm truck. Well, you're not going to go to the gas station, fill it up, drive around the block, and then reload the gas tank and check gas mileage because it's just not a large enough sample. And I've done that a couple of times on research plots. The yield variability between identity replicates at 100 feet is pretty high. And so I like to go at least a quarter mile or 80 rod or 1,000 feet down the field. And I think you replicate four times. It's either going to give you an answer or it's going to show you that there just really wasn't a lot of yield difference. But for the most part, run the length of the field. I'm using the farm machinery that I farm the 1,000 acres with. One of the things you've pointed out to me in the past was you've learned some things about stratification of fertilizer. Why don't you elaborate on that? Yeah, I'm always big on this concept. I can't improve on things that I don't research or measure. And buying phosphorus and potassium is something that we were taught in college. And 
dad did and everybody. So I'm just like, well, let's check it out. And so we set out some plots that were 60 foot wide, and then we just kept them in the same location. The first thing that I noticed was that I just wasn't getting my money back. I'd spend 50 bucks for phosphorus, potassium, and maybe get 25 or $30 worth of grain. And I'm just like, well, boy, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm just like, well, maybe that's just the first year. And then we try it again and we try it again. Well, after 10 years, I'm kind of like, something's wrong here. There's some reason that I'm not making money by buying P&K. And been to your no-till conference and heard a lot of other no-tillers talk about the importance of either using some starter or root zone banding or strip killing or whatever. And then common sense starts kicking in. And we've often heard that P and K aren't very mobile in the soil. Phosphorus, I think, is about one inch, maybe moves, and potassium is maybe two inches. Where nitrogen, oh my goodness, nitrogen moves about four foot in the soil. It moves with water up and down every time it gets wet or dries out. And nitrogen is very mobile, but P and K are almost immobile. They just stay put wherever you go. And so then I got to thinking, well, I wonder if it just isn't all building up on top. And then more common sense starts kicking in. I'm like, okay, I've seen pictures of researchers that go out and dig up corn plants. They use a garden hose or a dunk tank, and then they rinse all the soil. And you look at the profile of the roots, and it's like there's not very many roots in the top couple inches. And then as you move down in the soil profile, you just get more and more roots. I'm sitting there going, thinking, okay, I got all my fertilizers in the top two inches. All the roots are in the 8-inch to 12-inch. And I'm like, this is just really one of them things that I just totally overlooked. I've always got to prove it to myself. So I went out there one time with a probe and I'd pull an 8-inch core out of the ground and I took my buck knife and I'd cut it up into four sections. And in fact, my daughter helped me. We just got done doing it. I haven't seen the data yet, but we did it by the inch and we'd cut an 8-inch core up into 8-inch chunks. So anyway, we sent it off to the lab, of course, and got the data back. And sure enough, all of it. Just to give you an example here for potassium, in the top two inches in Illinois here, we're pounds per acre. In the top two inches, I had 428 pounds per acre in the top two inches. And in the bottom two inches of that eight-inch core, potassium levels are only at 152. So I've got not quite a 300-point spread from the top two inches to the bottom two inches. Now, we all get excited now with global positioning and we can variable rate. And so somebody takes soil tests and we come back and say, oh my gosh, this area over here is 50 pounds less than this other area of my farm. And so you need to put more on over there and less on over here. And I'm sitting here looking, everybody gets a little nervous about a 50 point spread. Good Lordy, and I got a 300 point spread and (laughs) I didn't even take one step. So my vertical, I guess here's the statement I would make, my vertical variability in nutrient levels levels is far greater than the horizontal variability in nutrient levels. I've got to start focusing on getting the P and K in the ground, and now I should be able to start getting that return on investment. And the other thing is the top couple inches on a rain event, I run the risk of when you just lay it right on the surface, I run the risk on a big rain event that it's going to end up going down the creek and didn't do me any good, doesn't do the environment any good, and doesn't do the people at the Gulf of Mexico any good. So, all right. And all the sad thing is I've been no-tilling for whatever, 30, 40 years. And I'm just like, God, Lordy, I just overlooked this one. So I get you asked earlier about the biggest mistake. And I have to go back now and say it. It's the, the continuing to spread P and K on the surface. It hasn't done me a lot of good. So in no-till, how are you going to get this deeper? 
Well, with a strip till bar, I mean, granted, they don't give those things away, but I did some strip tilling in the early 90s and absolutely loved it. We actually blew some P and K in the ground. I need to put the nutrients where the corn plant eats. I always like to use these simple examples, but if you're going to go out and feed the pigs, you'd put the ears of corn or the ground feed or whatever, you'd put it in a trough because that was the easiest for the pig to eat. And you wouldn't put the feed for the pig three feet up because you can't reach it. Same way with a corn plant. If you put the food for the corn plant right up there on the top inch and we have dry weather, even though there's plenty of food up there, you can't eat it. you got to have water. Now, granted, with no-till, I certainly have a lot more moisture in the soil profile. Root zone banding is one of the things. The starter fertilizer thing is another option, but a lot of weight. Planters are big. It's going to slow me down, and I've got a little more time at harvest to go out there and get it down on the ground. And I think it's a great opportunity, whether it be a machinery dealer, whether it be a fertilizer dealer, or whether it be a farmer. If you're looking to cash flow this thing and write a business plan that shows a return on investment, you go out and buy a rig that does some root zone banding and hire out. Be a little moneymaker in the fall. Go out and do some custom applying of nutrients and get them down there six, eight inches deep where they belong. So correct me if I'm wrong, but years ago you saw a slight increase in yield with starter fertilizer, but you couldn't make a return on investment on it. Am I right on that? Yep, that is correct. We looked at three different scenarios. We had the 1034-0 by itself, and then we had three tanks on the tractor, and then we had a tank that was a 50-50 blend of 1034-0 and 28, and then we had one tank that was just 28 by itself. And the 1034-0, we were like two by two. And again, I'm not sure that two inches is deep enough. It's maybe okay for a little starter thing, but if you've got very much phosphorus that you want to put down, I mean, I think it's got to be deeper than that. But anyway, really just barely got my money back, if I even got that at all, let alone the time and everything else. Now, the 50-50 blend, that made me feel a lot better, but much to my surprise, just the straight 28%, two inches, three inches away from the seed, there was a lot of profit. That was, yeah, I'd spend a buck and get two or three dollars back in green. That was, it was pretty easy to make money using 28, but you can't squirt it in the trench. Corn plant doesn't like it. It'll burn it, so it's got to be off to the side. We'll rejoin Frank Lesseter and Marion Calmer in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizer equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G dot com. Before we get back to our conversation, here is Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. What do you have for us today, Frank? Well, Julia, we're doing this session with Marion Commer from Alpha, Illinois today on this podcast. And for my little known no-till fact, I'm going to go back to 2002 when Marion spoke at the uh, National No-Tillage Conference in St. Louis, Missouri. And he had 10 years of research from his own extensive on-farm research studies that didn't show any economic advantage for soybeans that were planted in late April or early May, with plant populations of over 175,000 seeds per acre. He says this was true even when 15-inch row beans were either drilled or planted with either no-till or conventional tillage. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lesseter and Marion Calmer. 
these days, if you look back 20 years on what you were doing, it seems like you're kind of relaxed now because long about <laughs> 20 years ago on January 4th, you'd hit the road and do meetings after meetings and wouldn't be home until March. Not pretty right. much right. Yep. In the early days, I think I started out in the early 90s speaking at meetings in the back of machinery dealerships, talking about different culture options and different row cleaners and seed firmers and metering systems and all of the row spacings and all of the things that I'd learned. And what was so great was passing on what I'd learned at my farm, but then you'd get a lot of questions and it'd make you think. I'll never forget the time I flew up and talked to the no-till farmers of Huron County. Sure, Michigan. Right. That's in the thumb of Michigan. I presented the data that I had, and during the question answer period, one of the fellows, he said, Marion, he said, up here, we got some sugar beets and interested in narrow row corn, and what do you think about narrow rows? And I said, well, I said, the neighbor and I have compared 36-inch corn rows to 30-inch rows, but I said, I've never <laughs> gone to anything less than that. And so that was one of the things that stimulated when I was on the plane flying home, thinking about how can I go home and put out some research plots. And so that's what's so great about going to meetings, and that's what I miss about virtual meetings, but still, when you're there in person, you get a chance to sit by somebody new and you know that you're going to be honest with him and he's going to be honest with you because you're not neighbors and you're going to tell each other what's working, what isn't working. The learning curve at an actual farmer to farmer meeting is so phenomenal. It's just a great environment. Well, it's interesting when you talk narrow rows because when you talk to a no-tiller, even a conventional tiller, and he tells you he's seeding or planting in 22-inch rows, you pretty much know he's a sugar beet grower because that 22-inch rows is what the sugar beet guys were using. And it got those guys into trying what they called narrow row rows in 22 inches. Yep. I think the learning curve goes on, and that's what's great about farming. We pass that information that I've learned in my lifetime, passing it on to my daughter as she comes on board as well. But you get to that point where you say, you know, I've fine-tuned my nutrient plant. I've fine-tuned my no-till systems. I've fine-tuned the genetics, the populations, and I'm running out of new frontiers to explore. The narrow row corn thing is certainly one of them. I've just always said corn is a grass, and you don't see farmers putting their the pastures are not in rows. The hay fields are not in rows. And when you plant oats, you don't put oats in rows. And corn's a grass, and I think its natural environment would be a solid-seeded kind of a thing. And as we want to continue to push the corn yields higher and higher, you've got to maximize the corn plant's ability to harvest the sunlight. You've got to maximize its ability to pull water out of the soil, and you've got to maximize its ability to pull nutrients out of the ground. And I just looked at a photo the other day of when I was in high school, and my brother had come home from the Army, and we were picking ear corn. We had a picker sheller. So we were picking it in the ear and then we'd shell it right on the back of the tractor and put it in the wagon and haul it up to the bin site and dry it. It was a pretty tall hybrid, but it was on one of the family farms. And I'm standing there and those were the days where dad was hill dropping, which meant that planter would collect three kernels and then it would drop all three in a hill. And we'd go about 27 inches and it dropped three more in a hill. And from what he had learned from his dad, where they used to have check wire right. and they would right. check the corn and they'd put three in the hill because they always felt that the insects would eat one, the cultivator would get one, and then you'd have one left to harvest. The corn was tall, and I was sitting there just looking at it, and I'm just like, that was only back in the 70s. And I'm like, those three plants, they all competed for sunlight. They all competed for water. They all competed for nutrients. And then the bare soil around them grew weeds. 
you think about today, I mean, my goodness, if somebody calibrating the meters on their planner and they'd see a planner drop a double, everybody would go ballistic nowadays. And years ago, we used to purposely drop three together. The evolution of agriculture has been a pretty cool thing to watch, and it's going to continue in the future. You mentioned earlier about the benefits of going to meetings and talking with other farmers in the hallways. And I, several times I've had a national no-tillage conference attendee tell me that he was out in the hall talking to some total stranger. And the stranger would say to him, did you just hear that stupid idea that that guy had in there? It will never work. And the other guy says, well, I've been doing it very successfully for seven years. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I sometimes think that all of us that have been going to your no-till conference, and we all commend you for putting that together for us because that's been a great platform for all of us to learn. But I tell you, sometimes sitting there during the evening meal, and you're sitting with total strangers, so what you do is the instant replay of everything that you'd heard during the day, and you're sitting there at supper time having a nice meal and a beverage, and you get to visit, and and I tell you that best way to learn is visit with somebody else. And again, to gain the confidence to go home and try something new. Even those of us that give presentations at the conference, just the questions that we get stimulate more thinking. That's what's so great about agriculture. Every year we get another chance to do it better than we did the year before. I'm reminded of 10, 15 years ago in late August, somebody called and I answered the phone. It was 5.30 or so and I was still here. And it's somebody I knew and they signing up for a no-till conference. And I said, well, I got you signed up, but I'm kind of embarrassed because I don't have the program done yet. <laughs> the guy said to me, I don't care. Right. Well, what do you mean you don't care? And it's not good for my ego. But he said, look, I know you'll have a good program, but if I got the program from you and I think it's rotten, I'm still coming because I've seen the value of networking in the halls. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it is so true. And sometimes I think the conference, it just draws such quality people from around the globe. And that's what stretches your imagination and you see things. And sometimes I think the best thing somebody can do is say, well, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> because then it generates conversation. And farmers are, without question, the most innovative people in the country. And agriculture, of course, is America's largest industry, but it is also managed. The average age of the people that manage farms is the oldest industry as well. And so as we get older, I'm finding this, I think I was in my 30s when I started talking at your conference, coming to some of the early ones, and now I'm getting close to my mid-60s. And it's a little tougher to change nowadays. I don't change as quickly as I used to when I was younger, but like I said earlier, boy, if you don't try something new, the best thing that can happen is try something new and fail. Right. Um, learn something. You learn something. If you don't fail, it's like going snow skiing. If you don't fall down once in a while, you ain't trying anything new. And the most important thing is it's not how many times you fall down. It's uh, your ability to get up and move to the next place on the game board. That's where your conference is, in my opinion, second to none. Everybody that's there, they're not ashamed to tell you what they tried that didn't work. And somebody else will say, well, yep, that happened to me. But here's what I changed, and then this is how I got it to work, and we all move forward as an industry. I want to talk about another topic, but before I go there, I want to ask you to explain something to me. Sure. You told me once that President Bill Clinton came by your farm. Yes, he did. <laughs> Tell us about it. 
<laughs> well, we'd heard it on the news that he was coming down to Carl Sandburg College to announce some program, and I don't even remember what the program was. But the first farm that I bought is located right along Interstate 74, north of Peoria or southeast of Moline. And it was all over the news that Air Force One had landed at the Moline Airport and that the motor brigade was, I think it was something about the weather that they weren't able to fly the helicopter or something. And so they put him in the limos. So sure enough, my mom and dad came over and all of us, and we were sitting out there along the interstate. And all of a sudden, it's just both lanes of traffic. And it was as if there was no traffic at all. And then all of a sudden, we started to see the police cars coming by. And then there were actually two limos limousines and we waved at both of them because you never really know which one if he's in the first one or the second one but it was kind of interesting you just don't see the traffic stop on an interstate very often so bill clinton came by your farm at 70 miles an hour at least they were doing at least 70 mile an hour when he blew by that's for sure i doubt that he ever even saw me at the top of the hill now uh, just uh, recently uh, where we built cornheads here on route 150 that president obama came in his new bus and he mm-hmm. came to a little pumpkin patch that's just a mile down the road and the secret service people asked me to help them secure the real estate within about a half mile perimeter and also to be with them in the parking lot and so i got to go with the secret service people because I knew all the neighbors and went around, introduced them. And the day of the event, of course, then uh, they had the metal detectors there and I was standing there and I said, hey, these people, you got nothing to worry about. And then, of course, we took the dogs and walked the parking lot. The dogs were sniffing for bombs, of course. And so I got to be the last one through the metal detector and then they'd save me a seat in the front row. So, (laughs) yep, I did get to shake Obama's hand and actually have a picture of it. My daughter did as well. So whether you like them or you don't, I mean, those are kind of once in a lifetime events. Right. I got to tell you my presidential story. Uh, We were in the Omaha airport and this was when Reagan was president and Reagan had made a presentation in Denver and then he had come to Omaha. So there was a government plane out there and these pilots walking around. Well, there was a tornado warning in the airport. Reagan had left. He'd gone back to Washington. So they take us down to the basement of the airport and we're sitting in the narrow hallway just sitting on our butts and these Mm -hmm. pilots are across from us. We say, what are you guys doing? They said, well, we're with the presidential thing. He said, we got a limo in the plane out there because we leapfrogged. This was the limo that was used in Denver earlier today. And then they, oh, there's uh-huh. another one here. And then we leapfrogged. So we're sitting there and someone says to him, well, what's in the limo? And they kind of look at each other and they don't quite know what to say. And I said, come on, come on, tell us what's in the limo. And they finally said, the limo's full of Coors beer. Because this was before it was marketed east of the Mississippi. (laughs) So so they were going back to the White House with a load of Coors beer in the limousine. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Yep, those people, they they got a lot of security that uh, surrounds them during the events. But it's nice to see them get out and talk to the general public every once in a while. Yeah, I had another story, too. Back in the... Probably in the late 60s, uh, ag editors used to meet in Chicago each year, and Nixon was there when he was president, and so somebody got a photo op, and everybody got their picture taken with Nixon. So I made a copy of this, and my dad was a township supervisor back home in Michigan, and I sent him this picture and said, here, you ought to put this picture up on your wall. Here's Republican Nixon with your son. And right. So he called me about two months later, and he said, I did what you told me to do. I put it up on the wall, and he laughing like mad. I said, what are you laughing about? And he says, everybody comes in and they say, who the heck's that guy with Nixon? 
<laughs> so let's well, let's, uh, let's go and talk about narrow rows. You're kind of the grandfather or father of 15-inch rows. How'd you get started on this kick? Well, like I said earlier, that the innovative farmers of Huron County were the ones that stimulated that initial thinking and came home. And I had an old cycloplanter that I'd built that would plant beans in six-inch rows. And on the plane, I got to thinking, well, if I just took a roll of duct tape, I could tape off every other row and I could plant some 12-inch corn or I could plant 24-inch or 30s, 36s or whatever. And so that's what I did. It took a long time, but got it done. And then we harvested it one row at a time. And it was pretty obvious uh, the yield data that I got. The rows were still 1,000 foot long, but harvested enough of them that you could see the potential the potential is there. So then we got over into the cornhead business and invented the first cornhead that could harvest 15-inch rows. Certainly, uh, neighbors were kind of shocked when we saw that first crop coming up out of the ground and you'd see skid marks off down into the ditch and everything else, you know, people looking when they went by. But yeah, that was back in the middle 90s and still working with it today. And I got a lot of people that are really successful at 15, 20-inch rows, any of those kind of things. But that's what I'm always looking for is the potential. Let's give the corn plant a chance to express itself to its maximum productivity. When you get another corn plant, it actually can be considered a weed because it's right. competing. It certainly helped on combination with no-till. really shuts down the erosion. I had a lot of people that tell me on hillsides, they really noticed the 15-inch rows really hold the soil considerably better. But the cornhead thing, I learned a lot and got to work with both a lot of nice people at the Case Corporation in the early days with my first invention and then moved on and worked with some of the people at John Deere and tested corn heads and took corn all the way from Mexico border all the way up into Canada and back and learned, again, another opportunity to learn a lot of new things and have gone from the narrow rows and moved into the residue management area and then upgrade kits now for corn heads. And now we're starting to actually work getting a lot of phone calls on Marion, help me, except my combine. I'm struggling out here and it's just been a great opportunity. I really enjoy helping people. It was taught to me right from day one at Bomb dad and came from their parents and from their church and neighbors. You get far more out of life by helping people than you do by taking. And what I'm doing today, that's what makes it so much fun. Well, I'm old enough that I remember we were working in the late 1960s with a group that was doing reports and books for Alice Chambers and Clyde Height from Illinois was a big booster yep. of 20-inch rows. And that never quite caught on, although I know 10, 15 years later, there were still people looking for those old Alice Chambers 20-inch corn heads sitting in the field someplace. But uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Narrow rows in both corn and beans, it kind of comes, everybody gets excited and then it kind of phases out and then it kind of comes back again and whatever. And uh, I tell you, right time, right place. And I've seen some pretty tremendous things there. But I think all the research plots, two, 300 research plots a year. And I've been doing the independent on-farm research since the middle 80s on 35 years. I can honestly tell you that as I look to the future with my daughter and we continue to buy more farms and she rents more and more of the family farm. We got one of them has been in the family for a little over 100 years now. And I'm pretty sure we're going to go to 20 inch rows and then we're going to strip till so we'll be able to blow the P and K we'll root zone band all at the same time and of course with the GPS and the auto steer. I'm not so sure that we'll obviously strip till the corn but I'm not so sure that we won't just slide over and strip till 20 inch beans and blow some P and K in the ground. It'd be a little different analysis. Sure. But that way we're getting the P and K six, eight inches deep 
it's basically on a 10-inch centers, and we just keep moving back and forth from year to year and plant in between the rows every year. You're talking now about row width, particularly with people who are using cover crops. We got a few people looking at 60-inch corn rows. And I remember you jokingly said on the program once the reason that we had 60-inch corn rows in South Africa so the elephants could run between the rows. But we got a number of people trying 60-inch rows now. on There is. And it's one of the ways you learn. You always got to try. The talk I think that I did for you folks that's on the virtual uh, no-till conference this year is the seven steps to better agronomic thinking and exaggeration is something that I use more and more every day when I'm trying to problem solve and I always look at that and you've got to exaggerate and you got to go to one extreme and then you got to go to the other extreme and it helps make it easier for the mind to understand but I don't know I'd look at it those kernels are only going to be every two or three inches apart and you talk about creating competition between corn plants I think maybe on certain years you might get along just fine but boy on a year where we're struggling for uh, moisture or we're struggling for sunlight. That's something that people don't talk about. On years where we get a lot of rain, we also get a lot of clouds. And corn plant really needs sunlight. And that sometimes, I think, on those kind of years is where you see some yield differences. This past summer, of course, was no different. Our normal weather was not normal. On 12-inch and 15-inch corn, you've talked about equidistant spacing. Talk about this a little Well, if you think about it, and you go 12 inches by 12 inches, and we did some of this for Harry Stein several years ago, and 12 inches by 12 inches would be one foot by one foot or a square box with a kernel on every corner. Obviously, 43,560 plants per acre, and that's maybe a little stout for what I've got, but for some of those guys that are growing that three, four, five, six hundred bushel corn, not out of the question for those folks. You can look at that square box and then you can say, well, let's make it one step better. Let's turn it into a diamond pattern so that the adjacent row is a half cycle off. And now the closest plant could be like 13 to 14 inches apart. Even though they're 12 inch rows, you measure diagonally and really maximize that weed control and you really maximize the interception of sunlight. And I'm not so sure sometimes the bigger benefits from closing that canopy and the solid seeding is the fact that if I can use the corn leaves as my solar collector and I keep the doggone sun off of that soil, I can keep the soil temperatures from getting too far out of hand because I don't think the microbes like it. And of course, as the sun hits the soil, we start to accelerate the evaporation. I mean, like during the winter months right here, we all know on some of the country roads, you get a little black spot out there and the sun hits it and it just heats up like a radiator and then it just starts melting the snow around it and so you can tell that dark colored objects and sunlight it really heats things up and the earthworms I know they don't like it even the other worms that are in the soil so uh, I think there's a lot to be said that just simply uh, shading the soil to keep that soil temperature from getting wild is a good thing as well. I'm going to remind you of something you told me once and you had a cousin or somebody who was an engineer at John Deere I think Mm -hmm. And when you first came out with your 15-inch corn head, you invited him out to take a look at it. And he walked in and took a look and said, I'm leaving and you need to call a patent attorney. (laughs) Is that about right? That is a very true story. Uh, I'm blessed with some really uh, great people around me. And one of them was one of my cousins. And I mentioned to him that I was working on a corn head that could pick 15-inch rows. And I had a little prototype and he came into the shop and he took a look at it. Didn't think about two minutes. 
He said, that's patentable and you need to shut your mouth and get to a patent attorney. And of course, you know me for almost 30 years now, Frank, and you know how much trouble I have keeping my mouth shut. But anyway, exactly. And was lucky enough that I met up with a retired patent attorney that used to run Deer Company's intellectual property department. And he was a great guy, good thinker, and just right down to earth. And he helped me write my first patent and got it to issue. And I remember the day I left his office and he turned to me and he said, worked with people like Eugene Keaton and Howard Martin, which are all legends to anybody in a little bit with John Kinzenbaugh. And, And he said, I've seen your kind before. And he said, now that you've learned the train of thought, and he said, you know your way around the patent and trademark office. He said, you'll just continue to spit out inventions. And he said, they'll just keep coming. I looked at him. I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, I think this is a one-off idea. (laughs) He said, no. And so we're closing in on now over a 25-year span now where I'm getting close to having 20 U.S. patents on concepts for harvesting. And I don't know how many patents we have in foreign countries around the world that, that harvest corn. But it's a gift from God and use it wisely and use it for mankind. And you go go home at night with a smile on your face and doing something for other people. People. And that's what I've always commended you as well, Frank. Uh, putting together the no-till newsletter, you've certainly been a leader in the industry of the adoption of no-till. And without that information, we'd still all be out here walking around trying to figure it out. But certainly been very helpful uh, as well to be able to get that knowledge transferred to us as farmers. A farmer can call you up and order a corn head these days, whether it's 15 or 20, or you'd probably make him a 12 or anything else. But tell us about a couple of the other products that have come along. Well, it's kind of interesting, the no-till conference, and not only learn agronomically, but mechanically. And I had a fellow one time, and he came up to me after I got done speaking at the Hall of Mirrors out there in Ohio, and he showed me this picture, and it was his corn head, and it had a whole bunch of corn stalks on top of it. And he said, can you make this problem go away? <laughs> and I said, boy, I don't know. I said, that's a big one right there. And so he handed it to me, and I kept that photo and came home and started working with John Deere Cornhead and figured out that the speed ratio wasn't quite right. And then uh, I was no-tilling in 15-inch rows and higher populations. And then all of a sudden, uh, the BT genetics came along, and it was like the trifecta of residue buildup, I guess. And I just was trying to plant, even two years later, no-tilling the corn into the bean stubble. And all the corn stalks were still there from two years previous. I mean, they were decaying. So I had a nice big windrow in 15-inch rows. I had a windrow of residue and got a nice black strip and got the corn planted. And then one of those front went through and 60 mile an hour winds and it blew all the windrows of soybean stubble and bean straw and corn stalks. I tell you, the next day I come by on the road, you couldn't even see where the planter had been. It just blew it all covered. And I knew I had a residue problem. And I kept working on how can I get that corn stalk to decompose a little bit quicker. And of course, we were working with stalk rolls on the corn heads for 15 inch rows or whatever row spacing. And they always say that necessity is the mother of invention, and I'm a walking example of it. I needed to come up with a stalk roll that could break that plant open, and the, the BT genetics especially, and let the earthworms eat it and let the microbes go to work on it. So that's what led us to inventing what's now called the BT chopper. And got 10 blades on it, and they're razor sharp, and got a little revolving window so that it's a moment in time where it opens up and allows the corn stalk to come in between the flutes, and then the razor sharp flutes chop it up 
into little pieces that are inch and a quarter long. But I really think, and I just got done talking to Dr. Bilo again this year, and he said their research would indicate corn on corn, that the chopping up and getting that corn residue into smaller pieces was worth about 10 bushel in a continuous corn operation. I really think that, and this happened by accident, was that not only can we cut it into pieces that are inch and a quarter long, but they're sheared into two halves. And I really think about the earthworm when he comes up at night and he's looking for food. And if we shear that stalk and open it up so that the pith is exposed, it makes it a lot easier. I've seen photos of it, night photos, where they grab the, it's like the dental floss that's in the pith of the corn stalk. And they pull that out of there and then they can actually take that dental floss and pull it down into their hole. And I think it accelerates the movement of the residue down into the soil. The organic matter improves and the earthworm populations improve. So I think my soil health is certainly a lot better. That to me, the, the sharing of that stock into two halves. And we do the same thing on bean stubble. I mean, after I invented the BT chopper, I'm just like, well, good Lord. We run all the bean straw through the combine and all of us, the no-till, I mean, we all we make sure we get good sharp blades and we keep the knives in as tight as we can and we try to chew up the bean straw and we all know how important it is to get it evenly spread. Right. If we cut a 30-foot pass, you want to spread 30-foot and we all know that the chaff has got to be spread as well. And I don't think there's a no-tiller in the country that would ever give a thought to just barely cutting up the bean stalk and not having a straw chopper out there. And the corn plant's no different. The, the smaller we make it, the faster it decomposes and we're going to recycle those nutrients back down into the the ground. And so that was one of the things that really helped on my no-tilling was not only get the bean stalks to decompose quickly, but to get the corn stalks and get those nutrients back down the ground, especially the nitrogen. Hey, this has been great. We've gone on for quite a while. We better wrap it up, but it's been fabulous you talking about your 40 years of no-till and how you've been an innovator and how you're still dreaming up new ideas. You got any new research plot idea you're going to try this coming spring? Well, I think the thing I'm going to take a look at is maybe some multiple applications of nitrogen. All the years that I've looked at it, nitrogen is very, very powerful. It's got such a phenomenal return on investment. I think it's a, the last calculation I had, I, for every dollar of nitrogen, it grows $4 worth of corn. I'm thinking that I could, could be a friend of Mother Nature and maybe put some of it on. We're in an area where we can use the NSERV and put some of it on in the fall. And if I go to strip till, we'll put a little bit on in the fall and then maybe put a little bit on with the chemicals that burn down and put a little on with the planter and then with the 20 inch rows we're hoping that we'll be able to maybe skip row so that we're sure. putting nitrogen on 40 inch centers but at least it's between two corn rows find four applications of nitrogen to certainly be more environmentally friendly and more profitable but still I seem to find enough things to keep myself occupied and can't spend too much time in the field won't have any fun time left over exactly right well no till gives you more fun time well, it certainly does. And again, I got to commend you, Frank, for all the work that you've done and your crew. And you're bringing on a good bunch of folks. And we all regret that we won't get to see everybody at the No-Till Conference this year. But we're all going to come out of this thing just fine. And we'll look forward to seeing everybody again next right. year. Sounds great. Did a fabulous job, as usual. All righty. Thanks, Frank. Okay. Thank you. You bet. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A 
reader asked recently why we don't have more no-tilled acres in the United States. And again, today I'm going to go back to Marion Comer, who has pointed out in different times to us in articles and presentations that change isn't easy for anyone, as we tend to get set in our ways as we get older and change becomes more of a challenge. But new technology has definitely helped the adoption of no-till. And there's not only new cropping technology for farmers, but there's also new technology in the transfer of information. Marion thinks over the coming years there will be smaller increments of improvement being made to the no-till systems in the future. And the big jumps and gains for those of us that are already 100% no-till have already taken place, and now we're simply fine-tuning the system from year to year. Will we see more no-till? Yes, but we won't see the dramatic changes we've seen in previous years. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Marion Calmer for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Montec Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lester and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.